Welcome to Benevolent Business, the podcast discussing how to build a business that positively impacts society, the community, the environment, employees, and much more. Brought to you by your host, Hayden Bloomfield, that's me, and producer, David Proud. That's me, and if you watch the video version, you can see my lovely lockdown hair. Same with me. <laughs> um, so I was, I was uh, doing some networking this week, and it is the Kent and Victor Chamber of Commerce, and one of, one of the members said about one of their clients is a, a gin company, and... They're so sustainable that I think he said only once every three months they put out one sack, black sack of rubbish. That, I wonder, in right? three months, what is in that black sack? <laughs> it's like, given the waste material, what is it that builds up over three months that they haven't managed to... They haven't got that on their website. They got uh, So basically they make a lot of their spirits from surplus produce from local farmers, oh. which is pretty good. So they say they specialise in fruit, brandies, rums, spirits. Oh, the the company, by the way, is called Greensand Ridge. They're a Kent-based company. That's why we specialise in fruit, brandies, rums, spirits, where the raw materials are local to us and not suitable for supermarkets. You know you get, like, the weird-shaped fruit and stuff. It's not weird, it's just slightly less than perfect. Oh, can't have that at a supermarket. Yeah, like a straight banana. Yeah. <laughs> 100% renewable power. Wow. So powered by green electricity using an electric still instead of running gas steam boiler. It's more expensive, but better for the environment. And I think that, that actually goes into what we're going to be talking about today with John Waddy, our guest, um, because he's trying to go completely plastic free. And that's another thing they're saying is they're, they're also working towards zero plastic but you've got something else you wanted to talk about. You had a book, didn't you, that you've just started reading? Well, yes, I have, David. <laughs> well, do, you, do you want to say what it is? Because it's no good for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's Happy Sexy Millionaire by Stephen Barlett, who has his own podcast, Diary of a CEO, so shout out to that. But yeah, this week he, I pre-ordered the book, so now I've got, I'm learning all about being a happy, sexy millionaire, or the unexpected truths of fulfillment, love, and success. So how far through are you? I'm 64 pages in. <laughs> yeah, but it might be a 100-page book. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, it's a 262-page book. Okay, so. so you're a fair bit in. So how does that fit into like sustainability and, and, that, and the um, benevolent side of things? In benevolent side of things, as the sustainability is in your own lifestyle, in sustaining a healthy mindset. So it talks a lot about... Well, it's the whole journey of Stephen. When he was younger, his ambitions were, he grew up in poverty and his ambitions were to become a millionaire and have a Range Rover and a Lamborghini and a mansion. And as he grew and his wealth did as well, he ascertained all these things that he's strived to achieve and reach those goals. And in reaching them, sort of realized that, oh, actually, it's it didn't achieve happiness he thought that by by getting all this money by getting that Lamborghini and getting that mansion he would be happy but he realised it's not it didn't bring happiness to him at all and this book is the journey of a lot lot of what he talks about is gratitude so it's the sustainability of your mindset and having that positive attitude and having a achieving happiness that's where the benevolence comes in as well it's all around your own energy in the world and how you can help those around you and how you can become happier and more fulfilled so that that 
ties in quite nicely to a book that I've reread recently, which is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. <laughs> have, you, have you read that one? No, I, I think I started reading it. It's incredible. And it's really funny. Really? Um, basically, the, the, the whole premise behind it is everyone cares way too much about absolutely everything nowadays. Uh, and there's, there's you've only got so much brain space to be able to, to deal Give with it fuck. all. Yeah, so it's all about not giving a fuck about the things that you shouldn't and only caring about the really important things to you. But part of it, what he says is, <clears throat> a lot of people have these goals of, I want to live in this size house, I want to mm-hmm. be earning this much money, I want this car. And then they get to those goals and they're like, oh, okay, that hasn't actually brought me any fulfilment. That's It's not like, what next sort of thing. That normally leads to a midlife crisis. So what he's saying is, instead of those goals, you should have ongoing goals that you never actually fully succeed at. So it could be, I want to be a more generous person, because Mm -hmm. as you get more generous, you can go, okay, what's the next stage to be even more generous? So, you know, it's improving your life and improving other people's lives as well, um, rather than just focusing on getting this one material thing. Yeah, my, my girlfriend's got the book and I started reading it. And when I was there at one point, I just picked up and read a couple of chapters and it's, because like one thing similar to that that Steve talks about in Happy Sexy Millionaire is just in terms of expressing gratitude in every day. Mm-hmm. I think he references a study or another book about every day doing exercises on gratitude, so just thinking about what it is. Well, it's like what you were saying with your other book that you're currently reading, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, so that's like daily exercises of just taking that moment at the start and the end of the day to think about what you're actually grateful for and what you've got going for you. And Because too like society now we're just sort of focused on that next big thing or a lot of it's materialistic as well about the latest iPhone that's coming out and how your iPhone sucks now because it's not the new one or someone down the road's got a bigger TV or they've just moved house and it's in a bigger road or a fancier postcode Hmm. whereas if we actually practice the art of being grateful for what we've got because obviously we're very lucky to be alive it goes a lot more scientific a lot more deeper in that as well because I I work one of my clients is a hypnotherapist Ali Hollands and uh, so she's got the three P's of positivity, which I can't remember what they are right now. Uh. But the whole idea is by, but like your your brain basically feeds off what you put into it. So if you put in negativity, then it uh, looks for negativity everywhere. Whereas if you put in positivity and remind yourself of your positive things, it, it um, fills your brain with like dopamine and serotonin, all the really good hormones, which picks your your whole life up, your mood, the way you think, everything. So that's that's something I try and do I need to do a mm. bit more but yeah just write down at the end of the day sit down and write what's been good throughout your I day I have a reminder on my phone every day or every weekday at like 6 o'clock what does it say it shows how good it is I bloody ignore it but it goes <laughs> off though while I'm eating breakfast and I'm like eh, after me yoga and it's today I'm going to enjoy X and I look forward to Y so then I have to fit in and say today I'm gr- I've even forgotten I just said it <laughs> Today I'm going to enjoy recording this podcast and I look forward to having a beer this evening. Nice. You know that, that, uh, you said that the other book that I'm reading, which is High Performance Habits by, I'm not going to remember his name, um, but he also, it's going to be written in here actually, Brendan Burchard. Burchard. I bet I said that wrong. But yeah, so a part of it, you can get the High Performance Planner. And the book's really good. It's about like, he's done studies on the highest performing people and high performance can be anything it can be a sports person it can be a 
business owners anything and so he's found the, the best habits to become a high performance person and one of them is is this daily planner and every morning you got 10 steps to a morning mindset that you write down every day so and one of them the number one is one thing that i can get excited about today is and that's exactly what you just said yeah. what's um how many days through are you with that how many days in a row? Uh, well, I'm I'm going through the book first, and I should finish that tomorrow, and then I'm going to start the planner uh, tomorrow night because you you basically at the beginning of each week you you do a weekly thing and then you do a daily, and then at the end of the day you got a, a journal as well, so you, you keep yourself accountable to what you're saying in the morning. So it's, it's actual real. Well, there's one thing I want to revert back to that I almost want to challenge when you said about the piece of positive and like with positive thinking and positive mindset you fill your brain with dopamine and you bring positivity around you i would say i'm a very positive person i always seem quite bubbly and happy and i don't i've never really struggled with mental health issues as such and and just in general i'm always quite happy but i still see a lot of negativity (laughs) mostly in other people yeah so that's that's another thing that's like giving a fuck um the other thing he says is it's okay to be to not be okay mm. um, uh, it's not so bad anymore but I know social media a few years ago is a lot of showing your best life everyone's having a great time there's no time for sadness you know is is putting forward not your true self but your ideal yeah. self and it makes everyone feel like they're not living up to everyone else's lives I think that's changed a little bit now I think because people talk a lot more about mental health and things like that but you, you brought your book up again yeah on that note I'm just chapter four stop keeping up with the kardashians <laughs> but yeah it's, it's it's tough because as i said if if you're constantly thinking negative if you you're focusing on that side of things then that's what you're going to see you're going to see more negativity but mm. it's all about getting in that habit of every day just taking five minutes and writing down the positive things and then you start to notice the positive things more in your life exactly and it's yeah, about focusing on what you have got rather than what you what you don't have. Because so, as well, like every human suffers with it. That hedonistic adaptation, the idea that you strive for this goal, and then when you actually achieve it, you you have that rush, that feel good feeling, but it just wears off. Or say, when you're striving for that, I don't know, that fancy TV that you've seen released that's seventy inch and ultra HD and brings you popcorn even as you sit down on the sofa or whatever but when you actually get it you have it you watch a movie you think oh it's amazing but give it two weeks three weeks four weeks and you sit there and you go oh anyway and suddenly you're used to it and it's that hedonistic adaptation that it's that as humans we can never be fulfilled that, fulfilled that way and the way to be fulfilled is helping others and exploring what you are grateful for well that's that's another thing from Mark Manson's book is he says you never stop having problems Mm. your goal should be to have better problems so even uh, like the highest earners they'll still have problems they'll just be different problems to yours and they'll probably be easier problems and happiness is actually having problems that you can challenge yourself to and overcome yeah but as well even on the subject of money there's been numerous studies and discovered that earning more money can only affect your happiness up to I think it's 70 grand a year after 70 grand a year doesn't change your happiness at all and and reverting back to me lovely book from Stephen Bartlett of Happy Sex and Millionaire he says about with a number of billionaires he knows they're actually more miserable than those he knows that aren't billionaires and he 
in his one of his recent podcast episodes, he talks about he's in having a conversation with a billionaire he knows quite well. He actually envies normal people. He was saying about he went round. I think this was like pre-COVID. Went round his his mate's house where he's married. He's got a kid. They've just got your average three-bed semi-detached. They've both got jobs and they have the weekend off. And he went and he sat down with them, and they're just sitting there having a cup of tea on a Saturday morning or whatever it was, just chilling with them. And he just thought he's so envious that they can just sit there and switch off and have this relaxation because mm. he's he's just always strived. He's always been so driven with goals and ambitions that he just can't stop. And he's built up his great empire. He's got vast sums of money. He's a billionaire, and yet he's envious of the fact that they can just relax, they can chill out. He's got all the money in the world, but he just can't switch off and he can't stop. So let's completely change the subject to the conversation and have a chat with this week's guest. On to John Waddy. Here we go. So welcome, John, to Benevolent Business. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for inviting me. No, thank you. It's our pleasure. So to kick things off, the Kentish Soap Company... Can you summarise for us in 30 seconds what exactly that is? Yes, we're um, a small independent family-run business in Sittingbourne in Kent and uh, we make natural soaps, candles, bath and body products. And everything, we, everything we do, we try to do with as much as an ethical and uh, eco-focus as possible. My one question I've got is why soap and how? Just how did, you, how did it get into soap? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, really. Um, my wife started um, very much as a kitchen table business back in 2011, and she was a preschool teacher and was using a lot of um, commercial soaps, particularly liquid soap, and uh, found her hands were getting very dry, the eczema and, and so on. Um, started looking into why that was and um, realised what it was, and then started making her, her own uh, soap. And then very much um, sort of with friends and family, um, uh, we sort of uh, giving out soap and realised that actually people wanted to buy it. So we um, went through all the various um, safety assessments that are needed um, and started selling at farmers markets, um, largely, um, around the county. And then after a few years, we were approached by the National Trust. Um, and uh, that was a bit of a, bit of a turning point for us, really. Um, and they wanted to sell um, our soap in some of their local properties um, in Kent. Realised that we couldn't work from home. You know, we were renting two storage units at that time and uh, my son had moved out and we were using his bedroom and we built two workshops and it still wasn't enough. So we decided to look around for some premises and we found these premises in Sittingbourne, they were new. Um, it's probably about two or three years ago. And at that point we, we bought the premises. Um, I left my, my um, uh, work, I, I worked in financial services IT around the world for 30 years. So it's completely a new, a new um, area for me. And my nephew and daughter joined us. Um, and uh, we've been here in Sittingbourne ever since. Amazing. That's a, that is a proper family-run business, proper family journey of all coming together and chipping in and like starting out in, in, at home and just... Uh, it's similar to how I started my business. I can just imagine it just sort of takes over. It's just like, oh, it's just this little counter and then... <laughs> yeah, the you, house you can't leave the everywhere. kitchen table or the dining room <laughs> table or anything like that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so for you, it was successful career, you said, in financial, financial IT around the world, yeah. which sounds like quite a nice career to have. And so you gave that all up to join and to go yeah, and start Yeah, I, I worked away from home a lot. Um, mm. So, you know, even when uh, my wife Jane uh, was here in the UK, um, you know, I was living in Auckland for three years. Okay, I'd come back every two or three months or whatever, um, India, um, you know, various parts of the world. And uh, really decided that, that I'd done enough of that. 
um, and um, you know, give something else a, a, a try. And the kids are uh, older now; they're in the late twenties. So, um, good opportunity, really. Was uh, it still quite nerve-wracking when you decided to make that change from a established career to something completely new? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It, there's two worries, isn't there? There's obviously the financial worries. Yeah. So you've lost your income. You know all that all that goes with that, and you, you're you're taking a financial risk to, to to a large extent. And I was also um, trying your hand at something new. Um, and um, I've always been a person that does try um, to get involved in other things. I'm always willing to try things new. But absolutely, I guess we were a bit fortunate because we we knew we could sell the products. We've been going for a while. It's not like we started from from scratch. But you know all the issues of scaling up, finding um, other routes to business and you know, last year was an interesting year. You know that that's all that's all a challenge, um, but and you know exciting, exciting. I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't go back now. <laughs> I'm curious in that situation with your like as you said having an established career, telling your colleagues, oh, I'm I'm leaving. I'm going to be moving on to something new, and then the conversations. Oh, what's that then? Like soap. My wife's got a soap company. I'm now going to commit my time to that. What was the reaction there? Was it supportive or was it? Oh, yeah, used? very supportive. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, the, most of the comments were lucky you um, to be able to go and do something. <laughs> um, I, I guess it was quite a high pressured environment. Um, mm. The company that I worked for had a new product. It was listing on the Australian Stock Exchange. There's all those sort of, it was owned by a private equity company, all those sort of pressures that you get to. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, the, you know it's, a, it's, a, it's a real change, a different set of challenges, but um, a real change. So most people were very supportive. And also my, the, pre, the employer I worked for, I worked part-time for them in the UK for about 18 months as I was easing out of the company. Um, so oh. they were quite supportive. So I was allowed to do both jobs effectively for, yeah. for a while. You know, it was an organized transition, but, um, and they were really supportive in that. It's always a risk, I guess, but um, one that I'm glad we took. Okay. So would you say, there were maybe less stresses and pressures going and running a business for yourself. They're different. They're different. I, I think when when you're a salaried employee, you've got some security, you, you know, no guarantees, obviously, particularly after the last uh, few months. But um, there are different challenges. Um, so, and, you, and you're, whereas when you're in a large organization, you've got support around you in terms of decision-making, you've got people you can bounce ideas off. There's very few of us, obviously, here. Um, and, you know, we don't have that breadth of um, experience, particularly in the retail world and the manufacturing world that, that have elsewhere. So there are different sorts of challenges, but just speaking to people, speak, networking at trade groups, they're all useful. They're all useful to, in terms of getting help. Going back right to the start, you said about your wife, it was just through having her own problem with products that she was using. So what can you tell us there about that? Is that to do with chemicals that were in the soaps or to do with how they were manufactured or what they do to skin? What was the actual issue there? It's largely the chemicals that are in commercial soaps, um, a lot of sulfates. There's also things like um, they often extract the glycerine, which is naturally in, in soap, whether it be liquid soap or, or bars of soap. And that's sold on for some other things. So that makes it drier. And then some people have allergies to, for example, artificial fragrances, um, colours um, that might be in, in, in products. So there's a, a mixture of things. So we very much went down the route of no artificial colours, no artificial fragrances, natural essential oils we use for the fragrances. That's an important thing for us. But that's, I guess, it's a, it's, a, it's a number of things. But largely, it's the chemicals that are in the product. They're, they're often byproducts of the petroleum industry. Um, which is, um, you know, oh, wow. um, they're petroleum-based, a lot of a lot of them. 
And is that also keep costs down? Yes. Um, cost is an interesting one, obviously. Um, absolutely. Um, it's a cost issue. But even with natural products, there's a. it depends what you're putting in them. So palm oil is a great debating point at the moment um, and the impact on the environment that um, um, the farming palm oil can, can produce. You're looking at a lot of food products, even natural products, um, veg vegetarian, vegan products. There's a lot of palm oil. Um, so we made a difference from day one not to use palm oil. But palm oil is used not because it's a bad product, actually it's quite a good product, because it's cheap. We have to find alternatives to that. Um, because we, from day one, we've never, never used palm oil. So in building a business all around being beneficial to the environment and obviously kind to hands, has that, did that produce a lot more challenges then? So obviously the reason these big, or the soap companies that um, where your wife was working, obviously the reason they use them, they're cheap, they're affordable, they're mass, they're able to be mass produced. So did that bring a lot of challenges for you then to go down that route? And how did you, how did you actually gain success with it? So uh, absolutely, so our prices are higher. Yeah, then the bar of soap, or commercial bar of soap in the, in the supermarket. And, and ours is very much a handmade product. We make, make our soap, for example, in batches of about 50 bars in, in um, tablets of, uh, and then we cut them. But uh, moving, moving premises, buying these premises allows us to buy in bulk. So for example, we can buy 200 litre oil drum, metal oil drum size of olive oil that goes in the product. So that helps keep the cost down because we've got premises. When you're at home, you can't have you know, liters, uh, barrels and barrels of um, olive oil um, in your living room. It's, uh, so that helps to keep the, 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 the cost down. The biggest challenge is around packaging. And when, when I speak to a lot of businesses, packaging is always a problem. You think packaging, easy. But we have made it an absolute goal um, and achieved a goal of having absolutely no plastic in any of our packaging at all. So that means we have products that are ready to go that we won't launch because we cannot find any alternative um, to the packaging without ordering in hundreds of thousands of quantities. So a lot of the leading edge technologies, sugar cane and whatever, they're quite quite um, heavy in terms of volumes and we're, we're not at that volume. So even if you have a glass jar, you, you, there'll be a plastic seal probably in that jar. If you have a glass bottle for your soap, liquid soap, if you have that, it'd be a pl plastic dispenser you know, plastic pump. So trying to find that was very hard. Um, and down to, so everything we do, um, so we've managed to find suppliers of glass bottles that have rubber seals. We largely use cardboard, um, you know, as, as, a, as a packaging product, protein item for our product. Um, we try to use eco-friendly ink. Um, in fact, we do all the time. Everything we do is either um, compost, fully compostable um, or recyclable. So the only, um, non-compostable product that we use is the gla glass and the glass and, and, a, and a, a lid. Um, we also have aluminium um, tins for some of our products. And aluminium is actually the world's most recyclable material. Um, uh, most of it in today's use has been recycled and it's recyclable an infinite number of times. So it's not unlike plastic that typically the best plastic is going to be recycled two or three times. Um, aluminium could be infinitely recycled. It doesn't lose any of its properties. Um, most of the world's um, aluminium is, is not mined. It's actually recycled. So you've got, there's a really strong ethos there and foundation of sticking to eco-friendly packaging. So, so you, cause you said there's actually products you won't release until you can find a way to package them. Absolutely. And then so they're mainly, they're mainly liquid product type products mm. um, because of the seals on, 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 on uh, things. So even a glass jar would typically have a plastic seal and it's very hard and very, 
it's obviously more expensive to buy sustainable materials. So we could package it all in plastic and, and save a, a quite a big cost. So you could take a view that if it's 95% um, not plastic, it's not plastic and it's good enough. Yeah, but we haven't taken that view as yet um, and unlikely to. Having said all of that, there are, um, when we attend various trade shows and things to, to, to look at packaging options, there's a growing number of um, a new, it was certainly a, a lot more innovation and a growing number of slowly reducing cost items, which means that sometime in the future, I think they will be, they will be more, um, more available. But, you know, if you're talking, it, we, the labeling on cosmetics is particularly um, strict, stricter than food. And, you know, you have to get it right. Um, and we have different product fragrance combinations. And when you start adding all those up and, you know, you get a minimum quantity of each one of those, you know, it comes to a huge cost that we can't afford at our level as it currently stands. But I think as time goes on, I've been on a couple of um, working groups with um, some, some the, the government in, term, in terms of, um, you know, the COP21 um, conference that's going on later in the year. And I, I think there's a, an appetite at that level to try and help small businesses by aggregating together some of these mm. demands so suppliers can provide them in a more... Um, sort of eco-friendly way but yeah so that we have we have we have actually three products ready to go that until we find until we're happy we, we won't release them wow that is a strong determination it's great yeah. to hear that because um that is one thing that really annoys me when i buy vegan products even if it's vegan food and it comes in non-recyclable plastic i'm like what why would you do that? I'd, I find that so strange. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, uh, particularly the larger um, vegan producers, it's tougher for smaller producers. But it's coming. Uh, it, I, I think it's it will come. It's just a mm. timing thing, um, and it's probably not too far away. But we we'd rather wait, and we're in a position to be able to wait, I guess, and you know, release it when it's right. We some of those products we may be able to convert into bars rather than creams or liquids. So we're working on that at the moment. So um, then they can go in our tins with their other products and you know and, and go that way. So there are alternatives, but one or two just won't translate at all and, mm. and will be what they are. In sticking to that ethos around packaging, have you found any issues around quality and the structure or the strength of the packaging? Or is it just a case of... So is the environmentally friendly packaging you use actually stronger and better quality or have you had issues there um a very little difference on the quality i would say um so cardboard is cardboard depending how, how it's produced you know mm -hmm. but is, is key but generally um is fine we um sometimes get differences with the ink that's used variations in color so we'll have we'll order some labels and then a couple of months later we'll some more and they'll be slightly different color but we accept that as a variation of that's the um, that's the way it is. We have these um, what we call individual bath truffles, which are similar to bath bombs, but um, less fizzy. Uh, and they go in a plant-based cellophane bag. Um, so it looks like a plastic bag, but actually it's plant-based cellophane. You get that wet. So someone buying it at an event or you know a show and, and carrying it around, it gets wet. That's going to start breaking down pretty quickly with, with water because it's fully compostable. So things like that, you have to tell people, make them aware of. But generally, no, um, you know, it, it, the, uh, the compromises aren't in the in the quality when it when it comes to us it's in finding it when you say you mentioned there it shows and the packaging is biodegradable it's plant-based cellophane so you said about you have to tell people and obviously make them aware how do you find people react to that 
is it a bit of a frustration that what do you mean it's not going to be strong and sturdy and it's going to break down quite easily or are they no. actually thinking wow that's incredible no it's just, always positive it's always yeah. positive oh yeah, good yeah, yeah. It's, it's never a problem it's just that if you hadn't told somebody and, it, and they're carrying it around in their hand or they're giving it to a child and it's running it's been raining all day and they come back and say it's, yeah you know that's, that's the issue <laughs> but um, or they've stuck it in their bathroom and it's really really steamy or right by the bath and it's got wet or that, that sort of thing but generally mm. um, it's a positive thing um, and, and it's almost a little bit um, maybe it's just the customers we have, but almost a little bit expected, more and more expected from from consumers. I think that you know the packaging should, for, certainly for our type of product, should be recyclable or compostable. Definitely. The one thing I want to uh, ask about is bamboo. So for a lot of things that I look out for in terms of being more environmentally friendly and just little products, is that bamboo is so versatile and it can just be adapted in so many different ways. Because you've mentioned obviously cardboard, biodegradable, and and plant-based, well, they're plastics anymore, but plant-based materials that replicate plastic. So, is bamboo anything you use for packaging? Yeah, or? we don't use it for packaging. Um, we do sell as um, which we buy in because we don't make, but bamboo soap dishes, which um, are pretty sturdy. Bamboo, as you say, is very versatile material. We buy those in. They, they come from Asia, but they're always ship freighted rather than air freighted. We, we we try and get that assurance from from suppliers so yeah bamboo is a great great material but we do sell some accessories so we sell sizal soap bags or little pouches that are made from sizal which are a bit rough which is good for exfoliating so you you put the soap bar into the uh, the bag hang it up in the shower use it for soap through the bag and things like that. so people are trying to find ways of um, eliminating plastic in the bathroom so we do sell a few things like that yeah packaging i don't know maybe maybe that could be something uh, sugar cane is the one that most interests me at the moment because that's that could be used for a number of things but yeah there's lots of options out there it's just at some point someone's going to make it really affordable mm. um, and it'll become the norm so on that because you're saying the options are there and you've demonstrated there with the kentish soap company that you can package environment in in an environmentally friendly way. So for big companies and like conglomerates around the world, would you say this is something that's perfectly acceptable as an option to them and it's viable, but it's just, I don't want, the inclination isn't there, but, or would you say, no, it's still in early stages as a small business, we are able to adapt, but. I, I think large businesses are up, are slowly um, adapting. The, I don't understand why they can't adapt more quickly. And it's obviously a price thing, it costs more. Mm. You know, sustainable packaging costs more. There's no, there's no two ways about it. But you know, with the buy-in power and the research and development, a lot of these com- larger companies have. You say, take a company like Unilever. You know, now it's got so many resources at its disposal. They could be investing a hundred, and maybe they are, but uh, in, in that sort of area. So um, it's frustrating they're not moving um, faster. So it, it's just a matter of getting it done. And um, okay, as a, very, as a very small business, we can react very quickly, and we've made our decision from and set our stall out from day one. You know, these large companies could could move more quickly for us there's a couple of things really around that um you know obviously it's the cost of packaging that's more expensive but one solution to that which is helps the environment and helps the cost is reducing the packaging Mm. so an example of that is that we do sell um, some of our products unwrapped uh, soap bars mainly and uh, at the moment we'd sell them in boxes of four unwrapped with minimal packaging so they come in the postage box effectively um, with a bit of tissue paper. And we're thinking more and more of selling them unwrapped. The problem with cosmetics is um, the regulations on the labelling are quite tight. So um, trading standards authorities are generally keen that the labelling is, in your, is on the packaging, not associated with the packaging. So we can't put a list of 
of, of um, ingredients on a separate piece of paper, for example. So that does restrict the, what you can do. But the, the, I think the, the, there are ways in which we can reduce our packaging along on those lines to more, you know, more and more. You've spoken briefly there about the way you send out your 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 products, but what about when you're getting the raw, raw materials in? What do you do there to try and make it ecological? We try our best, so we're not perfect because we're a small, um, you know, a small buyer, and some things come in plastic. We try to buy most of our ingredients from one or two providers. They tend to say, for example, I mentioned the olive oil, you know, so the oil drums, they're, they're metal drums. The um, essential oils come in aluminium cans. Yeah, um, so generally a litre or two of aluminium can. So uh, we try and choose the suppliers that give, give us less plastic in terms of delivery. We also try and we choose suppliers that we can trust where they've sourced the ingredients from. And so, for example, um, coconut oil is a big thing in the marketplace recently about um, monkeys that have been captured young monkeys taken from their mothers captured to farm coconuts because a, a monkey can pick a thousand coconuts a day and uh, a person can pick only 50 or something so they capture these monkeys so you know our, our coconut oil does not come from um you know that those sources so yeah, the shea butter that we buy from the the supplier um it comes from a cooperative it's in africa um but it's a women's cooperative where the money directly goes to the women in the villages um directly for that so they can support their families rather than being given to a company um, they, they receive very little from that. So there's the ethical side and the ecological side of, of, of sourcing. The soy wax we buy um, comes from European Union sources, which means that um, it's, it's, the soy has been grown on farmland that's already been cleared and reused for soy, rather than you know, um, deforestation occurring in, in other parts of the world, for example. So we try and look at those things as far as we possibly can. Um, and you know, we always find something new. We do that, but um, generally, if you use trusted suppliers, you know, most of the time, if not all the time, they're doing the the best they can. This all sounds like the journey of getting every aspect of your business to be part of this environmentally friendly and ecologically conscious method of packaging and suppliers. It's how long did that take to achieve to go from because. I'm just thinking, like where you said about you left your career obviously to join the company. Had you established all those relationships and got the packaging down to a T and found it all to be and got everything environmentally friendly at, at that point before you left? Because it just seems like such a big mission to get every aspect of the company. Yeah, we we it took us about a year to sort out the packaging, I would say, and to find everything. So we did at one time, for example, wrap some of our gift boxes in ribbon. Mm. ribbons plastic based so we found alternatives to that which is really butcher's string you call it but but cotton string but it took a while to get the volumes that we needed the types we wanted and the colors that we needed and all those sort of things the, the soap boxes were quite hard to find because they need to be lined they need to have wax really in the liner because they the oils will seep through the, the cardboard and um so that was quite hard to get that um but it took us a while but pretty much everything was plastic free from day one you know, because of the way we sold it. We we used to wrap our soap bars when we used to sell it at farmers markets in paper rather than um, in boxes. That doesn't work when you're selling to um, other businesses, particularly shops or whatever. It needs to be able to sit on a shelf safely um, not, um, without people touching it and, and so forth. So they need to be boxed. Um, so that transition was the thing that took us the year. So the suppliers that we used, um, we've used a number of them for some years, um, but some we've gone out and found, and found particularly the oils. Um, 
we probably found about four years ago, the supplier, um, which is fairly fairly new at the time. They, they uh, we've been using those since. So we were. We, it's, it's a long journey over. It's not mm. over three years really. It's a journey over uh, almost ten years. Um, but um, you know, it's been an evolution. Well, there's some good examples there of small businesses like working together, collaborating to, as you said there, with the oil supplier. Good example of small businesses working together on this mission to be environmentally friendly. So that's good to hear of more stories of more companies that are leading that way. And with your, well, maybe not right now because of the circumstances around the world, but you offer workshops. So talk me through how that works and how that came about as well. So obviously you're manufacturing soap. At what point did you go, ah, here's another idea, workshops? Well, that that, that started with our relationship um, with Kent Wildlife Trust. And uh, so we're a corporate sponsor and have been for a number of years. They were doing workshops and somehow, somehow, I don't know who had the idea, whether it was us or them, but jointly we had the idea of um, holding workshops there. So we developed a soap making workshop. It's about three hours, uh, typically in the morning, where we teach people how to make um, natural soap. We use a method called cold, cold process, um, which is a, um, a method that you make basically make the soap and then six weeks later it's ready it's cured so that's how that started and then when we moved into the premises here that was a little bit more difficult to manage um, because there's lots of health and safety issues that you need to to regulate like ventilation and things like that um, and as time so when we moved in here we we hosted the workshops here obviously not last year I think February last year was or probably a year ago was when the last one we did. So um, we generally have about six people that attend. We try not to have too many. Um, we teach them the method. They they make a batch of soap. We send it to them. Um, we cut it the following day after the workshop. We send it to them a week later. And then five weeks after that, it's ready to use because natural soap goes through a curing process, largely a drying process, but some sort of pH um, movement as well. And yeah, so they're quite popular. They're always pretty booked and we haven't held it for a year. It's a bit sad, really. It seems like a, just this weird idea of making soap. It's just baffling to think, and just like this workshop around it, it's so interesting. And because it's it it seems like something that's quite really quite pleasant to do. There's a, when I when I think of like especially like environmentally friendly soaps and bars, they are quite visually pleasing to look at. There's something about it that's just so nice to see this block of a really nice like pastel coloured bar of soap. Yeah, it smells amazing yeah. as well. And it smells does. amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a natural it's a natural chemical reaction between a strong alkali and, and oils. And uh, you can make um, soap with um, animal fat. You know, so it's fats and oils really. So mm. um, we obviously don't because we're a vegan um, product company. You know, it's that natural reaction and you take in a couple of almost um, well really liquids putting them together and getting a, a, gradually getting a custard quite tight consistency, which then hardens. Um, and then you could add natural colors. We use natural clays largely um, as the color and then the fragrance on top. Yeah, it's, an inter it's a really interesting process to, mm. to, to see happen. So with that process, in building your team, has it been, is it something quite hard to find? Obviously, like starting out as a very family-based business, is it quite hard to find staff in in your industry because it's well, well at the moment it's just the four of us yeah. um yeah but yeah there is but we almost took people on last year a couple of people on more last year um obviously not the right time there are people with a natural arty crafty type um uh, ability and there's people wanting to learn nothing beats enthusiasm and we make other products as well so candles is slightly different and bath products is something different. again we do get a bit of help at busy times of the year packaging and wrapping and all that sort of thing um dealing with some of the orders and, and, and that 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 sort of part of the business but but largely yeah um so anyone with an interest in it and willing to learn is um is that you can't beat that in, in, in my book so with having multiple products it 
was that something that from day one you started? Because obviously the whole inception was based around your wife's issue with soap. So how did you transition and expand into other products or was that from day one? Um, no, it grew. It definitely grew. Um, soap was number one. Then we introduced some of the bath products, bath salts, and then expanded the range. Uh, candles. Candles probably came last and they've been a real grower, really. Um, you know, that it's, it's surprising how many candles we sold last year compared to previous years. But uh, yeah, that grows. We, we've stopped making, we used to make rediffusers. Um, so it gets to a point where you can have too many products. And uh, so a couple of years ago, we stopped making rediffusers. We thought, you know, can't, you've got to stop something. And, and uh, But we have launched, uh, as I said, we are launching new products. So we've launched um, some facial bars last year. Um, so there's one with rose clay and one with charcoal, depending on your type of skin, which would be really popular. About um, 18 months, two years ago, we launched Solid Shampoo Bar, and we've all launched another fragrance last year. We try and not, because we could do, we've got ideas for loads of things. <laughs> and But as a small business, you can only do so many things. And obviously there's a cost implication that you've got to buy these things in a reasonable bulk to, um, you know, you can't do too many things. But soap is the heart of the company. Um, and what we love, but the other products, um, you know, they're, they're, they're great. Um, they're all, they all follow our ethos. They all sell, sell well, but, um, yeah, the, the, the soap is the, uh, the real love of, of us. I, I know product-based businesses to, to keep going, you need to constantly bring out new products and innovate. So how often do you, do you have like a plan of how many new products you want to release a year and in general how long does it take you to r&d a product as well so we have a list um almost as long as your arm of things we'd like to do so uh some of so the releasing is time constrained to some extent depending on when we think we can get them out um and how long we think the test it's probably around six nine months from i when from the time we not from the time we have the idea but from when we start working on that idea and through to how we're going to finalize it if it's an extra fragrance of a, of a bar of soap that could be done more quickly obviously that you know we already do that um but if it's a brand new product it's a good six nine months um and packaging is always the number one problem <laughs> so it always comes up it's interesting but um we like to try them first um largely on people we know or or, or friendly friendly customers you know sometimes we have to get additional safety assessments if it's something brand new for us because again it's highly regulated but um you know so that takes time um but generally uh, six to nine months that seems pretty quick though six to nine months to have a whole new concept thought of tested produced and then ready to actually mass produce for your for customers yeah uh, um you've got to remember we're pretty small and the ideas are um uh, going around in the heads for, for, for months, if not years beforehand. We, I think we've learned that you, you need to constrain the, the new products to work into, into a model that obviously fits our existing processes. So the facial bars fit into the existing packaging, for example, that we, the, yeah, that we have. Um, different labeling obviously but yeah so we when we're thinking we're thinking how we're, we're thinking ahead how we're going to do it these three three products that we have a particular problem within the packaging we haven't got an answer to we know how we're going to produce them because it's similar to some of our um, other products um, but we don't know how to package them there's an elapsed time problem there and it, it, until a time we can we can find the right right packaging so what will happen if let's say five years down the line, you still haven't found the packaging or it's not able to be packaged environmentally friendly. Will you abandon the idea or? Yeah, well, I think we will, but I'm pretty optimistic there will be a solution. Yeah. Or we'd be bigger and couldn't afford more pack, you know, we could buy, yeah. more, buy more bulk. So, you know, it, it could go either way, couldn't it? And I'm optimistic that there will, these solutions exist. 
yeah, solutions exist is for a company our size is, is not commercially viable. It's, that's probably the, low, the simplest way of putting it. But uh, at some point it will be. Wow. So there's there's no compromise. And that is such a firm belief and firm foundation of the company. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, um, you know, I, I can't see why it would be absolutely essential for us to compromise by releasing mm. these new products. We can make more of our existing stuff you know, from a commercial point of view, but we'd like to because we think they're good products. So there is a list, a reasonably long list of things we'd like to do. Um, as a, you know, as a, as a small business, you know, one thing I've learned particularly is don't start too many projects at one time. You never, you never, you never finish any of them. In fact, one might be too many sometimes, right? One project. But, uh, so, you know, we, we said shampoo bars first, then facial bars, and then, you know, on, on we go. So what is the best-selling product? Is it still soap or... Because you do subscription boxes as well. Yeah, they're, they're pretty popular, getting more and more popular. Um, and that's, that's partly... That, that's a great cost-saving, but also, again, an example of minimal um, packaging because they're not... The soaps aren't in boxes. They're in the postage box, effectively. And that's good. We'd like to see that grow more because we think that's great value. Um, and we've changed the software in which the, the subscription service ran. So we chose a bit of software at the beginning. It wasn't really... Fantastic, had limitations. We've learned from that. We've changed the software so you get more, more flexibility in terms of how frequently you want your um, subscriptions. You can pause them, all, all, the, all those sort of things you'd expect, but we didn't have in our own old, old bit of, of software. So we'd like to see those more popular. We'd like to increase the subscriptions to our other products as well. So soap is a, is a, um, a strong selling product, but, but some of our bath products like um, our solid hand cream is pretty popular. Um, and that comes in a tin and um, you can um, you tip the whole hand cream out and rub it between your hands and put it back in the tin. So uh, you can carry it around with you. So, you, you know, for the days when you could travel around, um, that was quite good. But also we sell refills. And once you've got the tin, you can just buy the hand cream, um, things like that. That, that, that. That's pretty popular. And then we do the bath products um, and the candles last year. I don't think we'd ever sold as many candles. It's really, really grew. I don't know because people were indoors more and candles are more popular. I, I don't know. But um, so we launched a couple of new fragrances, the candles. I think the one thing I'd like to see, because I think it is a fantastic good value and i would say this but i think it is 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 the same subscription boxes because i think there's a good opportunity there so i think i'd you know we concentrate a little bit more on getting that out there um in the future i guess uh, there may be a little bit more ecologically friendly as well because you know how many you need to make to fill that demand whereas if you're making it just to sell it on a store or send out then you're making them but you don't know how long it's going to take to get through that supply yeah it, the the products actually have a surprisingly long shelf life so they have a shelf life of a year um so we we will sell out typically what we do with the soap subscription boxes is we do a special scent that's unique to so like a bit of a surprise scent unique to the um subscribers um but we know exactly how many to make for that give or take a you know um and so we can obviously we only make that special set in the quantities that we we need but it's it, it is good in that sense but the the products have a good shelf life so we don't find that necessarily a a, a problem and every all the all the orders that we send out and the subscription boxes we either use raw mail because the postman's out and about anyway so from a from a carbon footprint point of view it's Okay, it's, it's less than perhaps an independent courier. Or for bigger items, we use DPD Local, which is our preferred spot, and they're a carbon neutral courier. We tend not to use anyone else unless there's a real, real problem. So, you know, we try and think about that as well. And even the, um, the labels, the postage labels we use are compostable. They're not plastic coated. So we don't use the standard raw mail ones. We bought our own. 
and we print our own. Yeah, so the whole package is compostable, which, um, you know, if you buy a, something, typically you'll get a plastic label on it, which, mm. which, is, which isn't. So, you know, we try and think um, of Every that detail. impact. Yeah, as far as we can, you know, and, um, you know, and again, it costs more to buy effectively um, customized labels that we buy which fit the raw mail start size and all that sort of thing. And, but, you know, again, we think that's worth the, worth the compromise. The subscription-based model seems like it just make your business as, in terms of running and operating, it just makes it so much more predictable in knowing what batches you're making. And I love the idea that as part of the subscription, you get this little surprise with each, and that's, that's only for the subscription. Correct. That's, that's, yeah. that's brilliant. And it just keeps yeah. that excitement and the interest there. Yeah, Have, yeah. How have you found, obviously, with people being indoors at home, how has that impacted? Because you said, obviously, you sold loads of candles. So has it, with people being indoors and stuck at home, has that benefited the company or has there been challenges as well? I think if you spoke to me on May the 17th or whenever it was last year, um, I, was, I, was, I was worried um, because mm. a, a, a third of our income came from selling events. So we used to send, sell the um, RHS garden shows, for example, around the, around the country. Obviously, that was none of that. That was all uh, disappeared last year. But we were fortunate enough, or we had good business planning, whichever way you look at it, a bit of luck comes into it, that we revamped our website shortly before. So from an online point of view, um, we changed all our shipping software that we use and, and systems behind the scenes. And we were, so we're in a good position to um, leverage a bit of the online selling. Um, and that, that did help us enormously, helped maintain where we should be and actually grow a little bit in the latter months. The other um, area that we sell is um, at um, other businesses, um, and they're a combination of food-based business, like there might be grocery stores or community stores that sell food and they're allowed to open during the during lockdown, through to attractions and um, you know non-essential stores that were closed. So obviously there was a, a problem there. Some of those stores did move to online an online model, and we continued to get orders. But the the events-based um, selling and the um, business-to-business selling obviously reduced during that period. But the online stuff, you know, we we somehow with good fortune you can hog every business needs a bit of luck. Um, so we prior to that, when we had our website redesigned, we outsourced our social media. You know that helped. Then we've got a great. Um, guy who does our social media for us and so all those things help a small business so we were able to switch almost seamlessly just by a bit, bit more spend on advertising on social media advertising or whatever you know we we're able to switch to to get um the profile that we needed so you know that's a, a lesson learned really that you don't keep, keep these things in-house um and we're now talking to a marketing company about you know because i can see some value for them to get, get us out there because um it's a little learning curve for us particularly mm. me i've never operated in this world before we're working with the right sort of companies that understand us um to get messages out there but yeah that was um a good piece of good fortune but the online aspect really suited us we'd we'd, we just got it right a few months before and then we were able to to really uh, switch it on um during lockdown we could put that to good business acumen (laughs) yeah i'm not sure well it was something that needed to happen it was just the timing was the perfect time yeah it's with so many different things, like it's been so clear throughout the conversation that there is this uncompromising determination that every aspect of the business will be environmentally friendly. No matter, like it just seems like it's there is just so many large costs, especially up front, before it becomes mass produced. Mass produced. So, with that, is money a driver for you, or is 
or is it not? No, it is a driver uh, to some extent. It, it, I guess uh, my time of life a bit le- little less so. I'm a, you know, we're a bit more fortunate now than we were 20, 30 years ago. It, it's still, I, I want to make the business an absolute success and I want to grow it reasonably significantly. I don't want to be a multi-millionaire necessarily, but I, I think we want to grow it to do the right things. It's almost a little bit of a, a bit of the... Um, the elder Apple story, isn't it, about, you know, we want to do whatever we want to do. We want to sell good products, but the the iPod was a way of doing it, right? Or we want to um, have good communication. Yeah. So the product's almost a bit, not secondary is unfair, but we want to do the right thing and we want to have the products that do those things. So the, you know, that's the, um, that's the driver, uh, I think. Yeah. We want to see, uh, see the groupers go, uh, um, we're not in it. We're not, a business that's going to go out and out to do anything to make money. We could buy things. Manufacturing is expensive. You know, it's hard, especially with a, an eco viewpoint. You know, it, you could buy stuff in and sell it and make money. We're not in, we're not in that game um, or that sort of area. We want to um, sell products we think are right, that are good for consumers, make us a little bit of money and, um, you know, help the do the right thing for the environment. So you mentioned there in the future, you've got plans, not necessarily being a multimillionaire, but you've got plans with the company and having that impact. So what is the future of the Kentish Soap Company? How will, how will you further impact? What other challenges have you got to overcome? We've got, I think, two main goals for the, the, sort, of, the sort of short to medium time. Um, one of them is that um, all, all of the stockists that we have, pretty much all of them have come to us. We've not gone look looking for them so we've not had an active strategy of going out to um stockists um and there are certain things that we're learning about um you know the packaging was the first thing we learned a couple of years ago that we need to do to support those type of business particularly businesses um that are smaller businesses like us businesses like refill hubs there's a lot of those that are growing up um around particularly in kent but um, around the country so we want to be able to use some of the experience that we've had today and be able to sell to more stockists because i think it's great getting our products out there we always worried historically about the kentish soap company the kent name within the, the company name as whether that would restrict us to to local uh, selling we found it exactly the opposite and exactly the opposite. They, Kent almost has a bit of a, a kudos associated with it, like Cornwall or Yorkshire or whatever. You know, it hasn't stopped us selling. Um, some of our stockists are in Edinburgh, um, for example, in Norfolk or, uh, you know, different parts of the country. You know, that's one aim to 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 try and, I think, get our products out there. We have a low sort of order, order value to help smaller companies to buy from us in smaller quantities as and when they need it. There's that area. Um, we might have a look at some point um, selling outside the UK, Brexit's no done us no favours. Um, <laughs> but it means that we cannot sell to the European Union, or even to Northern Ireland, um, because with cosmetics you have to have a physical person within the European Union. It's called a responsible person, and um, when you're selling that cosmetics arena, we can't afford to, to employ someone in uh, in the European Union. Obviously, all the time that we were in the European Union, it was it wasn't a problem. So that's day day way that when that happened, that's that market closed. I think over time there might be some agencies and people that might sort of come come about that, that do that. But the quotes that we've got are, um, to do that at the moment are quite heavy. But there are other markets in the world, um, and um, we need to look at um, markets that we think um, we'd like to work with. Um, so, for example, we we could never sell in China because um, China requires um, cosmetics tested on animals. We obviously don't test on animals. 
Um, so there are markets that are limited, but there are there are good markets, particularly I think Northern Europe, which could be good for us. So we'd like to look at that at some point in the future. I've learned a lot and didn't just to see how every aspect of the company is driven to like, every finite detail, even down to the labels and the raw mail distribution to make sure that even the label hasn't got plastic in it is extraordinary. And it's been a great learning opportunity. One final question I always like to end on is, what is one thing, on the topic of benevolent business, what is one thing within humanity that exists today that you hope will be eradicated in the future? One problem or, or that exists? Consider it a problem if you like, yeah, yeah, let's call it a problem. Yeah, so what is one problem that exists within humanity that you'd like to see gone? I, I think the growing problem that I can see um, is a trend towards um, inward nationalism i guess in 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 countries that worries me so um if you take brexit example the european union um, europe stood together pretty well under a good trade agreement and and on a wider agreement for for many years and and as it begins to falter you can see inherently people defending themselves it's a natural reaction um you see a bit with the vaccine arguments now what a predictable problem the covid vaccination issue is going to become the get the individual companies getting that i mean um you know that 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 um, um, amazing me that um, nothing was done on a more global level. And I think World Health Organization did try at some point. So there's a inherent, um, particularly when things get difficult, trend to, to think inwardly. Um, and there's, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work in many parts of the world um, and there's nothing better than having a diverse community, a diverse population, a diverse set of thinking. And uh, so that's a, that's a problem I like to see. You'd, you'd have thought as time, in today's day and age, and as time goes forward, that, that that become less of a problem and you hope it will, but actually, particularly the last 10, 15 years, probably found it's more of a problem. But yeah, that's a, that's the thing that I think, because once you get beyond that, those, that, that sort of thinking, you can solve other problems. You know, the, the, the poverty problem, the, um, uh, food problem, um, um, which will all become more, more you know, greater problems. Um, well, hopefully, when we're all allowed to travel again and see each other, it might sort of open everyone's heart up, and we'll be more, yeah, maybe, more maybe it's just a symptom of the times. But that's that's one thing I think I'd like to see people think think beyond just their mm. their their own country. No, thank you, John. Really appreciate it, and thank you for giving your time and coming on. No, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been great to to chat. Yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And there we have it, another great episode recorded with John. What did you think, Dave? Fascinating. Uh, first of all, the amount of effort that has to go into creating a business with zero plastic. Uh, just a, I think I can equate it to when you becoming vegetarian, not even just vegan, just vegetarian, and you start to realise how much like animal fat and stuff is used yeah. in so many products. Harry it's like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like that with um, with his business. So even like a pump on a soap, and it's just got one tiny little bit of plastic in it. Where it's like, well, I can't can't use that now. Yeah, and like the little raw mal label over the label, whatever it was. Yeah, just, the stickers. Yeah, just a little bit of plastic everywhere. And, and one thing I learned, which I didn't know before, is even recyclable plastic. You can only recycle it two or three times, and then it's mm. then it's done. I didn't know that. Did you? No. There's well, there's a lot of like questions around plastic and how recyclable recyclable plastic is anyway and how much right. plastic is recyclable because I've sort of done a bit of investigating into that and the, despite the fact we're putting it in recycling the amount of stuff that actually isn't recycled is quite shocking yeah I mean this that's something that makes me think because you hear different things don't you so if if recycling's got any food waste on it then they won't recycle it I don't know if that's true because obviously 
you put in all your recycling in in one bag normally with the home collection unless it's paper so how do they then do they have to sift through it and find a single use plastic and throw that out or how does that work yeah i don't know good question i have no idea it goes in a big factory let's do a video documentary on it (laughs) next year it's only march oh my god it's the end of march but yeah it's Fair play to him, like going through that mission and actually, and actually, like the biggest thing was him holding off yeah, on releasing products. But like, that is true commitment there to your ambitions and your drivers there. And I think I'd love to have the same same vision there with the same driver. But yeah, if I went plastic free, given that our tools are made of plastic, we'd be <coughs> buggered. Well, could you get like a wooden chainsaw? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that. It just have yeah. It'd have to be bamboo, wouldn't it? So because bamboo's so versatile, I don't get why we use plastic. Bamboo's so versatile, it becomes so many cheap. different things. It's cheap. Bamboo's cheap as well. What compared to plastic? I've no idea. Like in, on a mass scale, because obviously mm. bamboo, it, it's probably a lot harder to farm that amount of bamboo that you'd need to replace all the plastic. I don't know. My experience of bamboo: drop one little stick in the in the middle of a field and within no time it'd be overrun <laughs> is that something you've come across in your job you dropped a bit of bamboo on the job site you come back no, it's like we, a forest we've had gardens where they're like yeah we planted bamboo it would be nice as like a little decoration in a pot and then the roots get out of the pot into the ground and it spreads it goes wow. under concrete I've seen it before it's different species of bamboo are at different levels of invasive but I've seen bamboo rip up house foundations and come through there was a customer I went to and they had bamboo in the ground in this little flower bed and it spread and they had a concrete patio and it had started the concrete patio had started splitting it started shooting up in between and it was getting closer and closer to the house and it was like only a couple feet away and they had mm, their bamboo cane stacked up against the house that they'd cut down and they were like four centimetres in diameter and 20 feet tall they lent them up against the house and it was against the top story window well, at least like they, they'll be like, well, we never need to use plastic again. We've got enough bamboo in our garden to last us a lifetime. Exactly. It's the fastest growing plant on earth. Oh, wow. So one thing is like you can look at a company like John's and that can seem like a real big undertaking and a lot for a new business to take on. So I think next week's guest is really good for anyone that's looking to start their journey because we're talking to Anthony Colias from Tree Points and I think that's going to be a really good one for people who are looking to dip their toes in a little bit. Mm, definitely, and in the journey of becoming more sustainable and environmentally friendly. So if Until people have got any questions or anything like that, how can they get in touch? They can get in touch with us, Dave, via social media platforms, so Benevolent Business Podcast on Instagram or Facebook, or you can reach out to us on LinkedIn. If you have any negative feedback, please get in touch with David Proud. If you have any <laughs> positive feedback, get in touch with myself on LinkedIn. None so or- far. <laughs> That's good. Uh, or you can email me hayden.bloomfield at hotmail.com until next week see you next week